Welcome to Bound for Justice, your weekly podcast that explores race, reconciliation, and social justice, one book at a time. Join us for a candid discussion about taking steps to create change in our lives and the communities we live in. And now your hosts, Rachel Rosman and Charlotte Wilson. All right, so welcome to another week of Bound for Justice. My name is Charlotte Wilson. I'm Rachel Rosman. How you doing, Rachel? Good. How are you? Good. Did you have a good week? I did. I was on spring break. And how was that? Did you do anything fun? Um, no, I worked a second job. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I had a big goal for a lot of things to do and none of that got done. Nothing got done really. Do you feel relaxed? Kind of. Moderately? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Well, that's was, good. But it's close to the end of the school year now. So I'm like, we only have four weeks left. So, so you're kind of in like coast mode? Right. Right. Yeah. That's pretty much how it is. I think for my kids too. Like I got a note from my daughter's uh, math teacher and she's like, are you guys ready for it? And then in big letters, it said no more homework for the rest of the year, you know, exclamation point, you know, times five. I was thinking she's more excited about that than anybody else. Right. Yeah. I've got a bunch of reports I've got to do for my job still. And today I was like typing one up as I'm walking to the meeting. (laughs) So the book that we're talking about this week is The Color of Law. And it's a book that was published in 2017, written by Richard Rothstein. So I know the last couple of weeks, we've kind of covered, you know, a couple of different books, you know, different approaches, some personal narratives. Last week, we talked about the Bernice King talk, which, you know, wasn't actually a book. And I know when we made our list of books, we wanted to read The Color of Law as a book that I actually put on the list. But I do think it's a little bit different, perhaps, from some of the other books that we've talked about previously. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a a lot more academic than some of the other books, a lot of documentation. The bibliography at the end of the book is massive. Yeah. But I think that's because of who wrote the book. Um, Richard Rothstein, he's actually a fellow at the Haas Institute from the Berkeley School of Law. So, you know, this is definitely a book, you know, founded in, you know, a lot of legal research, um, a lot of documentation. But he is, um, his research focuses on the history of segregation in the United States. This is his most recent book, but he has a number of other books that he's recorded previously or written previously um, around segregation and education. I know that you really wanted to read this yes, book. I know. And um, I typically like books, like historical fact-based books. I'm so unknowledgeable about any sort of financial issues or like housing or anything. And so I was lost through much of this. So <laughs> you're going you're gonna to really pull the weight on this one. Well, I think that that's an interesting point in terms of talking about, I know in the past we've talked about who's this book for, who would get. Um, value out of reading this particular book. And I think that's part of the reason why I was really drawn to this book, because I do think there is what he does in this book. He's an academic. He works in law. What he does is provide this really detailed evidence and really builds out the story with facts and policies and, and just numerous ongoing stories about how the history of segregation has really been supported through government laws and policies. And I think that's really what I like about the book, because sometimes when we talk about things like white privilege and racism, sometimes it's hard, you know, there's, there's the, there are the soft things that happen. There are the um, interactions or the, the interpersonal conversations that people have, but then there are things like hard, cold policies and facts Mm -hmm. that, create segregation in our society. 
and all of the downstream effects of what happens when you put people in certain geographic regions. And I think that's what I liked about this book. But I agree with you. This is, I mean, this is written by someone who works in law, who is a professor. And you definitely see that in the way that um, the evidence is presented. And I think I mentioned to you before when I was reading it, I was like, it's like the entire first few chapters of the book were like, this was deemed unconstitutional. But then nobody did anything about it. Like, but it was fine. And they kept going and with it. They just kept going. Yeah. Like everything. He kept saying, and this was, you know, this was ruled unconstitutional, but mm-hmm. there was a reasoning behind it. Like it was a, a, since it was the constitution and that was a federal thing, if it was a local government, then it didn't matter. And mm-hmm. the, the entire book was like that. And I think I found it interesting in the sense that where I, where I work tends to be a very low income area. I just found it interesting, like, yeah, I see where this has gone mm-hmm. from the very beginning into now. I mean, it's it's done its job as far as keeping people behind. In certain places. Like, is it yeah. keeping people in disadvantage? Well, and I think what's really interesting, he's really challenging this idea. And, and I know I have certainly heard this, and I think I really believe this until I read and really saw the evidence in the book, this idea that you see people of color, people of certain ethnic orientations in certain areas because because of personal racism, because they were discriminated against by a single person um, who would not rent to them, or because they were discriminated against by an unfriendly community, which is certainly the case. But I think his argument here is that's not really what perpetuated that. It certainly supported it, but what really perpetuated it are actual laws that you can go back and you can find the, the policies on that actually created the discrimination that prevented, that that assisted white middle-class families in establishing themselves in government-subsidized ha- um, housing. I mean, they were, you know, in financing in nice suburban neighborhoods and explicitly excluded Black people from being able to take advantage of those same government-backed programs. So as we mentioned before, the this entire book talks through, you know, all the explicit examples of where the government specifically offered assistance to white families in terms of FHA loans, where they explicitly they explicitly excluded black families. And, you know, Rothstein does a really good job of, of really breaking that down and decomposing exactly how that happened in terms of the deed restrictions built into those neighborhoods. And those those the deed restrictions in terms of only white families were allowed. And those were neighborhoods that were specifically built with FHA housing subsidies for financing. Did you find it at all surprising how involved the government was um, from the very beginning in terms of actually creating a system that excluded Black families from these government um, subsidized housing programs? I was. I mean, even from the very beginning when they talked about the person trying to commute from the job and they wouldn't even, like he wasn't even allowed to live closer to his job. So he and some other friends were getting paid less and commuting from farther away. And it was already setting it up for a disadvantage. The story you're talking about is the the group of Ford workers, the factory workers mm-hmm. working for Ford. They started in... I believe in Virginia. Then the plant moved to California. Okay. Yep. And they took those factory workers and said, okay, we're moving the plant to California. We're opening this new plant. We'd like you guys to move to California with the new plant and be in work there. But the challenge that they found is that the black workers that 
that moved with this plant move could not find housing close enough to the factory. Right. And then they started building housing near the factory, but weren't allowing black workers to be there. Right. So they ended up, I don't know if they established kind of another town in like halfway in between where they were allowed to, and they lived there and this guy lived so far away. He was talking about how he had to commute. Like it wasn't even worth him driving all the time by himself. So he and some other people would drive back and forth together. And um, I think he was like one of the lone people that ended up being able to keep that job. If you're interested in understanding the downstream effects of what happens when you set these types of housing restrictions in place and you restrict an entire group of people from being able to live in certain areas, I think that like what you just mentioned about the, the Ford workers, the fact that they were commuting an hour a day, the fact that, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't commute an hour a day right now. One way, one hour a day, one way. I mean, I know a lot of people do, but um, that is going to restrict a lot of people from being able to hold on to that job. It's going to be a lot harder to get to work on time Mm -hmm. if you're commuting an hour, you know, one way each day. Um, So a downstream effect. Like the commute really can lead into a lot of social issues as well. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, now you've got a person commuting overall two hours a day. They're going to be tired when they get home. They're not going to be as involved in family things. It's not going to be these long home cooked dinners. I mean, it's, there's so much that leads into that because I know I was commuting quite yeah. a bit previously and it was um, it was a struggle. Like every little thing was taken up by this job. I mean, you're going to bed at certain times because you have to get up and get there. And I think that in the, like there's so many different ways that can affect something. It was, very, it's very much like a butterfly effect. Absolutely. Um, and I just found it interesting, maybe disheartening that that was all government enforced or government set up. Yes, it's just been so long where there have been times like, okay, everybody's equal, except for this. Like, well, we're, we're going to try to make it equal, but, you know, that's separate but equal. Um, right. But not really. Yeah. And um, so we like to think about, you know, dates like, you know, the end of slavery as being you know, like a key date. Well, slavery ended, you know, how many years ago? You know, why, you know, why is this still an issue? Right. Yeah. And I think this book provides really great examples of how even into the 90s, there, th- these discrimination laws were on the books and there right. were still places where this, this has happened and continues to happen. Yeah. And I mean, even in the 2000s, like people still individually are so caught up in that idea. I mean, now it's more like the government doesn't even have to do it. Like we've, we've set it into play. Yeah. Now you guys get, now you guys take over. Exactly. There's been so much with support of the government, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting too, I've, I found fascinating. There's a part of the book at the very beginning where he's sort of setting up this, setting up the government's desire to, or the government's plan to encourage homeownership and the government's uh, intent. There's sort of their, their intention behind why they wanted to support housing in general. And um, I think it's the, I don't even know what chapter it is, but it's, It's like one of the first couple of chapters where they talk about this idea of perpetuating this ideal of owning your own home. And I'm just going to read this. Uh, The federal government's policy of racial exclusion had roots earlier in the 20th century. Terrified by the 1917 Russian Revolution, government officials came to believe that communism could be defeated in the United States by getting as many white Americans as possible to become homeowners. The idea being that those who owned property would be invested in the capitalist system. So I just found it kind of hilarious that this whole idea of um, the dream of owning the American home and home ownership and the government's desire to support that really came from this idea that they needed to prevent the spread of communism in the United States. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's handy. Yeah. Um, Because now I'm 
I don't want to share because I've got my own stuff. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. But that's for white people. And, you know, <laughs> who are not known sharers. <laughs> <laughs> but I know we were talking earlier before we even started recording about the idea of the perpetuation of that idea that of the ideal of home ownership and owning your own property and um, not owning your own property and the the stigma that comes or or the um, the the value or the benefit that comes with saying that you are a homeowner versus a renter. And I'm a um, I rent, and so I I do feel that a lot. Like in our neighborhood or our um, school district, maybe my daughter's school district, they aren't as like they aren't moving around as much in my district or the building that I work in. We have a lot of kids like in and out throughout the year. And I'm sure that my daughter's district does as well, but there is that stability where there's a lot of homeowners. I had a friend that I was talking to one time and I was kind of discussing where I lived. And he said, oh, you know, there's this part of there. There's like all these apartments going up north of this one road. And it's kind of like the, the trash of that town. And as he's mm. describing it, I was like, wait a second, that's where I live. Mm -hmm. And so he was, oh, well, you know, that you, you hit a gold mine there. Great job. Okay, so one of the other things that Rothstein does a really good job talking about and sort of breaking down, again, decomposing, providing the evidence for, is the concept of redlining. There are two things that Rothstein actually talks about in the book around redlining. He talks about the original concept of redlining, and then he also talks about the concept of reverse redlining. So have you, had you ever heard of redlining before? No, and I still don't understand the concept necessarily. Okay. Please go back. <laughs> So the idea I remember hearing about it, but then I remember being like, she'll have to explain. So the idea yeah. of redlining really had to do with identifying favorable and unfavorable neighborhoods. Yes, now I remember this. For which yes. they would give loans. And essentially, if you want to, if you just want to break it down to the simplest explanation, redlining is basically identifying neighborhoods where there's a heavy concentration of black people. And setting that as an undesirable place where they do not want to extend loans mm -hmm. um, because they're saying, you know, property values aren't going to be strong. Um, it's just not a desirable neighborhood. They do not want to make investments. It's going to be too, too much risk. But it was all perpetuated on this idea that these are neighborhoods that are black neighborhoods. Therefore, um, we're, we're not going to extend loans in these areas. Yes, I remember. And then the concept of reverse redlining is, is, is much newer. And again, if we want to talk about the downstream effects of discrimination when it comes to housing, reverse redlining is specifically going after people who live in predominantly black communities or when people are looking to purchase homes in those communities and looking for a loan, they're, they're providing loans that are much more risky, um, higher interest rates. Again, all perpetuated upon the location of the home and the and the assumption or expectation that those are black neighborhoods with higher risk. Mm -hmm. And the downstream effect, if we want to talk about seeing this move into the 2000s, when we when we saw the crash, um, mm -hmm. you know, 10, 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago um, with with the with a housing crisis, what you saw is those exploitative loans, the result of that reverse redlining that housing, that the housing um, crash in that time period more significantly affected black communities because they were, they had these higher, higher interest loans, these riskier loans, and they ended up um, defaulting on them at a greater percentage than um, folks in predominantly white communities. Yeah. I remember they were talking about somebody who had always paid 
paid their rent and had done everything and then came upon hard times and were being evicted and, you know, kicked out of their home after you know, 40 years of being there. Ta-Nehisi Coates, I believe, also put in a, has an article, The Case for Reparations, and that yes. talks a lot about the housing market. Yes. I believe. You know, one of the other reasons why I really enjoyed this book is Rothstein is definitely very action-oriented. And he def, you know, in addition to providing an immense amount of documentation about government-supported discrimination in housing, he also lays out some very specific mm -hmm. ways that if we really wanted to work on correcting what the government has perpetuated for the last hundred years, there are some things that we could think about doing, mm -hmm. um, which I found extremely interesting. I'm not sure how realistic I think right. they are. But I think um, that he even acknowledges that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really, you know, this isn't necessarily going to happen. But if people really were trying, you know, we could give you the opportunity to move into a neighborhood where you'll be socially unwelcome. But mm -hmm. And this is a pretty lengthy book, like we mentioned before. We get to about page 200, and he actually has a, a, a chapter titled Considering Fixes, where he starts to talk about what does it look like? What would it look like? if we actually thought about fixing um, this government-supported segregation. And in one paragraph, he says, I hesitate to offer suggestions about desegregation policies and remedies because imprecise and incomplete, though they may be, remedies are inconceivable as long as citizens, whatever their political views, continue to accept the fact, or the myth rather, of de facto segregation. If segregation was created by accident or by undefined private prejudices, it is too easy to believe that it can only be reversed by accident or in some mysterious way by changing people's hearts. But if we, the public and policymakers, acknowledge that the federal, state, and local governments segregated our metropolitan areas, we may be open, our minds may be open to considering how the same federal, state, and local governments might adopt equally aggressive policies to desegregate. So basically what he does is he sets up the entire book to say, hey, government, you created this problem. Mm -hmm. Hey, government, you need to own and take responsibility for what you've created by, by now setting in place policies and laws that start to create, I would say, I would call them reparations mm -hmm. for what has happened. That's pretty cool. I mean, obviously, we still need to work on changing our lives and changing our hearts. That's, mm -hmm. you know, the government can only do so much. But if, right. you know, if we create an opportunity for black families to move into better neighborhoods, we also need to have an environment that's welcoming. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's it's just not going to be a I, good time. It'll probably end up turning into like an affirmative action thing. Like, well, I was going to get that home, but now I can't get that home because I have to move into this other neighborhood because, you know, the government's handing out these loans to black families now. Well, it's interesting that you say that because um, you mentioned earlier that at the back of the book, he has an entire section called Frequently Asked Questions. I did not read all of those questions, but I did like that some of them were, <laughs> I did skim through them. <laughs> so what I really liked is there, there is a, one of the questions that he asks, and this is, um, this is on page 225. He says, why emphasize our obligation to remedy constitutional violations? Should you instead present it as an opportunity? Because everyone benefits from a diverse society. And basically what he is saying is, look, um, this is, this is, if we were actually going to take responsibility for and attempt to correct what has happened over the years, this is not going to be fun. This is not going to be easy. And it's going to be a little uncomfortable. In fact, it's going to be uncomfortable for everybody, including the white people. 
Um, and he and he says and he kind of says the same idea. He, he calls out the the concept of affirmative action um, and says, you know, affirmative action programs are a reasonable way to address the legacy of state sponsored segregation. But he says, let's be honest, if we're going to do that, that means that there's going to be a cost that will have to be felt or paid by white Americans who have benefited from these programs for so many years, there, there will be, there will, there's going to be a trade-off. There's going to be something that's, that's going to happen there. I think that I get so frustrated because there's so much not compromising going on in the country in general and in the government that I feel like this is almost so far off. Yeah. Um, it It is kind of hard to even feel yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Given the current administration, it's probably is relatively unlikely. And I and I guess the other question I I kind of threw around in my head too is, how do you strike that balance? How do you strike the balance between um, the government supporting, um, correcting a situation that they created? Because let's be honest with you, or let's be honest with ourselves, the government, the government, legally supported and backed prejudicial beliefs mm-hmm. by the way that they separated all of us. Yeah. Like, I mean, they, I would say they definitely um, perpetuated the, the yeah. racism that was already there. So but, can you I imagine mean, really, who's in charge of the government, but people like right. people, we voted people in. So yeah. Yeah. We, we going to, you know, if, if there's a lot of racist people, then they're going to be, you know, put in policymaking positions. And so it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, right? right. If you can change, if you can change hearts and minds, can you then affect policy? Mm-hmm. And, and likewise. But now you've gone for generations and generations of building up people as being lesser than and, you know, putting them in neighborhoods that are at more of a disadvantage. And now all of a sudden you're coming around being like, well, you know, we tried, we're, we're trying to change it. And, you know, but, it, but there's not, you know, it's not going to make as big of an impact or it's not going to be as easy to um, come back from. And I think this will be one of those things where when they always say, you know, equality isn't like somebody's taking more pie. Whereas this might be one of those situations where, you know, it is taking some of the pie. Well, and so what's interesting, though, I I loved one of the very practical examples that he points out in the book in terms of making amends. And he talks about so he he lays out a really um, good example of what has happened in terms of generational wealth. So we know that oftentimes people yes. look to real estate as a place for gen- for for creating that concept of generational wealth. So if my family owned a property in 1920 and they had a certain level of um, income that they generated from the value of that property that has increased over years and years and years, that's wealth that's passed down to me in a future generation, right? So the fact that there, there were entire Black communities who were um, denied the ability to build generational wealth, obviously there's a downstream effect of that. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, even if you did own a home as a black person, you were in a neighborhood where um, home property values didn't increase as much. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the level of wealth that you were able to create um, as a black person in a black community was much lower than someone in a similar home who received a government-backed loan, low interest rate, and a wonderful neighborhood that mm-hmm. has the the home values have increased. And he literally um, breaks this down. So if you want to see the breakdown, if you are a numbers person, if you are a fact-based person in this book, Rostein puts it right there. And he says, this is how much this family made in a black neighborhood. This is how much this family made in a white neighborhood. Look at the difference. And it's massive. Right. And I think that there, there have been a lot of studies done about that lately, about the, just the difference in between 
white women and white men and what their what their worth is necessarily compared to black women and black men at the you know at the same level same education everything making that comparison and it's it's astronomical really exactly and so much like and speaking of like pay equity between between men and women um recently i think it was last year or the year before um salesforce um the the software company the CRM software company they literally went through and they looked at the pay scale for all for all their employees and they made adjustments and they took a hit because they realized that they had their equity was not equal between men and women and they they went through and they made that adjustment they cho- chose to proactively go and do that to make sure that they actually had equity they as a company took that on because they knew it was the right thing to do one of the things Rostin mentions in his book in terms of figuring out how to sort of make amends is he talks about these differences in property values. And he actually proposes that um, one government program that could be created is that the government actually provides an offset to allow now, now that home property values have gotten so high in some of these more desirable neighborhoods that historically have not been available to black families, it's nearly impossible for a black family not having generated any wealth from the history of having owned a home and that that accumulated property value, it's nearly impossible for them to get into some of these these better communities. So what could the government do to say, hey, we'll kind of offset it for you? Um, you it, historically, you would have been able to get into this home had you had an opportunity to get into this home at this rate. So we're going to allow you in 2019 to get access into a home in that neighborhood at that rate. Mm-hmm. So we're going to, we're basically going to roll back the clock and say, okay, we're going to take the hit and we're going to let you get to that home. I love the idea. I can't, I, it's really hard for me to imagine there not being like a massive uprising mm-hmm. because of something like that. And how do you, how do you feel about something like that? I mean, honestly, well, I was, I was actually telling somebody about this today <laughs> at work because I was trying to explain, um, the, the book, the basis of the book. And I said, he's got these reparations ideas. I found it interesting, but then the person I was talking to was like, well, I don't know if I'd want to, if I'd want to be doing anything like that. Um, Why not? From both ends. I mean, it was a, it was a black individual and he was just mm-hmm. like, I'm not gonna be going to those white neighborhoods and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, these more elitist, you know, and not being wanted. And then knowing that, because then, I mean, I think there would be an uprising. People would be very upset about it, but then also it would be this whole aspect like, well, look what we had to give you because you couldn't earn it on your own. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't know that there would be a big, necessarily people would acknowledge that it's reparations so much as they're trying to lower our property value now when they sold this house for, or this, these people got into this house for this much. And mm-hmm. um, I'm probably, I'm probably missing that. <laughs> but so, so the person, they, the individual that you were talking to wouldn't necessarily be open to that. No, which, um, and it would be somebody who could have benefited from that. Interesting. Um, so that's one of the questions that Rothstein includes in his FAQs. And he says, it is normal for people to want to live among others with whom they share a common history and culture. There are neighborhoods that are mostly Jewish or Italian or Chinese. We African-Americans want our own neighborhoods too. Why are you trying to force us to integrate? So that's the question. And his response is basically, I wouldn't imagine a policy that would force African-Americans to integrate, but, you know, there could be other incentives to do so. He says that surveys show that most African-Americans prefer integrated neighborhoods, and so do whites. Mm -hmm. Um, But African-Americans define an integrated community as one in which from 20 to 50 percent of residents are African-American. So maybe that gets to 
your your coworkers point, I don't know if it's a coworker, whoever it was, that they want to be in a community where they feel welcome, where mm-hmm. they feel comfortable. And that's 20 to 50%. That's what African-Americans would consider an integrated community, which is interesting because I was reading an article in um, a, a local online publication. It was local and they were basically saying, look at all these neighborhoods in Columbus that are diverse. And it was like 8%. Seven <laughs> percent, and I'm like, that is not diverse. <laughs> um, and Rosting does a good job of pointing that out too. He basically says, if you want to determine whether or not you actually live in an integrated community, like here are the numbers you should look at. If you if you don't hit this percentage, you are not in an integrated community. Mm-hmm. I think the school that I work at is um, it was really segregated, <laughs> and I was looking up different school comparisons, and and mine kept coming on the high end of the chart, like very much a segregated community. So I think that it doesn't happen. It's not as integrated as you would think or not easier. I think that people are going to be more likely to try to integrate with all the school issues going on now. And they're going to want to get their kids into these different schools. And if schools are being kind of like if money is being distributed, which is another thing, the money is being distributed right. differently to these lower income Downstream neighborhoods, effect. they're getting, they're getting um, less money. They're getting lower scores, everything. It's all compiling. But I think that you would be more likely to get an integrated neighborhood if you're showing them a good school district and people want more for their kids and that whole benefit. If you're giving somebody a better deal on a home mm-hmm. and I can, and now it'll benefit future generations, then I'd be more willing to, yeah. more willing to do that. So I don't know if we've talked about this before, but this came up recently in our school district. So we're in the same school district. And recently, there were some changes that were made to the feeder patterns. Did we talk about this? Yeah, a little bit. It doesn't affect me because we're indifferent. But it, it does did affect I tell you how it affected <laughs> yes. us. So it affected our, which I was really surprised by, our school, um, our elementary school is the school that will, the feeder pattern will change. So basically, they, the, a decision was made that the kids at our school will now attend a different middle school. Which is different because it's almost farther away than the school that it's my, much do- farther my away. child goes to. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's just weird that they would choose your school. It was weird. <laughs> However, one of the most, one of the considerations that they took into play was diversity. Diversity in the school. And one of, but one of the challenges that's coming up too is that the school's a lot farther away. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're working to try and build, um, they're trying to, to build a more integrated school and make sure that they've got a good mix of different kinds of students in the school. And our school happens to be the most diverse school in the entire school system. So it was easy to just kind of take our school and say, okay, you guys are going to go over here. Yay. Right. Look how we've improved everything. That's kind of how it felt. But uh, but on the other side of it, too, I know that there is there is a an inherent inva- advantage, just as Rastin says in this book, integrated neighborhoods are better for everybody um, and are preferred. I know that although there will be some discomfort and it will be inconvenient for some families, long term, there should be it should be better for everybody, including the students that are going to travel a little bit further I think it's incumbent upon the school system, though, to make sure that those families are supported mm-hmm. um, as they they work to to create a more diverse environment. And I think that with my district that I work in, there is a um, I mean, there's kids that are getting bused all over. And and so I think that me looking at it being like, oh, my gosh, you guys are gonna have to go so much farther with, you know, the town in general isn't that big. <laughs> so it's it's inconvenient. But I think, well, you know, a lot of places are doing that. But I don't know. It just seemed seems interesting. Like, 
that they would take your school because it's more diverse, being like, well, look, look how diverse we are now. We brought this elementary school. And I mean, that wasn't the only factor, but I know that it was one of the most important things that they wanted to, that they took into consideration when they were making the decisions and considering all the scenarios that were available. So I know we're at the end of our time here. I think we probably overall had perhaps some different feelings about the book in terms of liked or disliked. I wish I would have understood more. I really do. I appreciated the information. Like I really enjoy what I learned from it. Um, but me trying to explain it to somebody else is difficult, but I promise, I promise you that I did read it. I just <laughs> absorbed, like I did the audiobook, I purchased the audiobook, and that was equally difficult to get through. And I read beforehand, this person said, well, the audiobook isn't that great because he does a lot of lists. Like he'll say one and then read and then two. I didn't even find that to be an issue. <laughs> like I was like, no, that's not that big of an issue. It's not like he's going through short lists. Like he's just doing different stories. And, um, but yes, it was, I really, I find it interesting. Um, I find the race part interesting. The financial part, I had no idea of. It, it got, it all ran together for me. Like it really did. <laughs> but I really did. Um, I think it's really essential for people to understand how it works because you would be like me otherwise and be like, well, I think everybody just wants to live together. Like it, they just choose to be this way. Right. Or, or you know, these these neighborhoods, you know, you know, maybe it was because, you know, people just had lower income, lower jobs, lower paying jobs. And that's why they're all in these neighborhoods. Whereas it was actually government, you know mandated basically. Yeah. I mean, he basically breaks apart almost every other assumption that we make about why mm -hmm. people end up in certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your point about perhaps some of the complexity of the, the content and how that could be challenging depending on your level of interest or your level of um, financial cooth. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I don't <laughs> no know if that's it, but you know, I mean, to, to a certain extent, yeah, there is, there is something to be taken into consideration um, from that perspective when you're reading the book. I would flip it on the other side too. And I would say, um, if you really want to be armed, um, either for yourself, because you want to understand more and you, there are some blockers in your head about, well, no, the reason, like you said, mm -hmm. the reason why people are, are in certain neighborhoods is because they do have lower income jobs. This is all that they can afford. That's why they live there mm -hmm. or because, um, people choose to be in a community with other people who are like them. Yes, those are true. But to really understand the reason why uh, we see significant populations of people, and it's not only just white people or black people being um, forced to live in a certain area, but white people being helped mm -hmm. to live in other areas. I think right. that's the flip side of it. This book gives you the facts, um, gives you very hard evidence that arms you with the ability to make that argument with other people. And that's why I like the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like do, the facts. And I do like the because I think that you can be like, well, you know, the government, you know, yeah, sure. Maybe the government did this. Then you can be like, well, actually, here's exactly how they did it. Yes, <laughs> like this is, it breaks it and down. And so um, I think it's easy for people to kind of be like, well, yeah, it's probably something, something racial, something, you know, I'm sure the government had something to do with it. Well, no, the government started it. <laughs> like, so, so I did like that. Um, I did like the facts that were in it so that you could bring them up to people and have that explanation. Um, yeah, I thought it was good. So from an action-oriented perspective, we talked about some of the things that um, Rothstein actually proposes in the book, some of which, to a certain extent, seem a bit far-fetched for now. Um, I think for us as individuals, if we talk about how can we take information from this book and maybe take action on it, I would encourage people to maybe do a little bit more research about the neighborhood that you live in 
or the um, the racial population or the racial makeup of of the neighborhood or the city that you live in to understand how those separations occurred. Maybe dig in and understand a little bit more about you know your your individual metropolitan history and. You know, he mentioned that some people have even looked into, you mentioned the deed restrictions in the neighborhoods, have seen deed restrictions for their neighborhoods that, you know, if they've been established for quite some time, may still include some discriminatory language, although no longer in effect. I think it's just good for us to understand and just really be aware of um, either the discrimination and or the privilege that we we may not be aware um, has supported us through the years in terms of where we live and our our ability to to have access to certain jobs or to to certain other you know benefits because of our residential location. And I think that he also brings up because sometimes we try to be like, well, we're in Ohio, we're in the North, we don't have these things here. And he does bring up that like if it's happening, you know, it's happening in this town, it's happening in this city, it's happening here. Go and look. He's I think he said even in the book, any metropolitan area that you look at has this in their history. If you just look, he made a point of of actually looking in San Francisco, which is considered one of the most liberal, liberal, Mm -hmm. um, non-discriminatory cities in the United States. And it was really, really obvious that it was a big problem there. as Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So good point. All right. So that's it for um, us for this week. Thanks again for joining me, Rachel. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Always, always a lovely time. (laughs) Always fun. Uh, So thanks again for listening and join us again for another discussion on Bound for Justice. Thank you for listening to Bound for Justice. Join us next week for another conversation about creating change in our lives and the communities we live in. 